Love Talk Radio. to you from a studio that sounds like it's under attack at the moment. (laughs) Oh man, we still got the construction going on. You're probably going to hear some hammering and some banging in the background. Um, That sounded dirty. You're going to hear some banging in the background. (laughs) Um, People were saying in response to the last show that it sounds like I have somebody held prisoner in a cage or something and they're trying desperately to get out. Okay, you guys are hilarious, I must say. Um, So, apart from the obnoxious construction noise, we do have a lot of stuff to get to today. Um, We got a breaking news story that I'm going to dive into in just a second. The Supreme Court has ruled on another issue, and uh, perhaps, yet again, kind of surprising the world just a smidge, and dealing a blow to the president himself, Donald J. Trump, We'll talk about that. Then I have a a fascinating story. It's about, it's some new poll numbers that just came out. Somebody asked the American people if they're happy. The results are devastating. (laughs) And then beyond that, somebody also asked the American people how proud they are of their country. And yet again, the response to that was devastating. So we're at record highs for feelings of, um, for not feeling patriotism and not feeling happiness. So I will give you the specifics to that. We also have John Bolton is out with a new book, and he's leveling all these accusations against Trump. I'm going to tell you what some of those accusations are, then I'll give you my verdict as to whether or not I believe them. Um, I have a new anti-Trump ad from a group of former uh, Republicans who are against Trump, so we'll talk about that as well. Some more coronavirus price gouging going on, a little talk about masks and how uh, we were lied to in regards to masks for quite a while. So 
there is a lot of stuff. Oh, I'll also get to, I should probably shimmy this one in for story number two here, but um, Trump signed an executive order about cops, and we're going to talk about that. Cops, not the show cops, an executive order about, you know, actual cops. So anyway, um, without further ado, let's get started. And uh, like I said, I'll do that with the breaking news story. So I have a little bit of breaking news for everybody. Um, I'm not kidding when I say the story just came out 10 or 20 minutes ago, or at the very least, I saw it 10 or 20 minutes ago. Maybe it came out 30 or 40 minutes ago. But um, the Supreme Court has ruled on another issue, the issue of DACA, which stands for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, It's an immigration issue. So I'm going to give you what they said, and then I'll explain a little bit more about DACA and what this ruling means. So this is from NBC News, and they say the following. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled Thursday that the Trump administration cannot carry out its plan to shut down the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which has allowed nearly 800,000 young people, known as DREAMers, to avoid deportation and remain in the U.S. Chief Justice John Roberts was the swing vote in the 5-4 decision, which deals a big legal defeat to President Donald Trump on the issue of immigration, a major focus of his domestic agenda. Roberts wrote in the decision that the government failed to give an adequate justification for ending the federal program. The administration could try again to shut it down by offering a more detailed explanation for its action, but the White House might not want to end such a popular program in the heat of a presidential campaign. Uh, they continue here and say, Roberts was joined, by, it was joined in the majority by liberal justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor. Quote, we conclude that the acting secretary did violate the Administrative Procedure Act and that the decision to rescind DACA must be vacated, Roberts wrote in his decision. Roberts called the Trump administration's total rescission of DACA arbitrary and capricious. Conservative justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh filed opinions that concurred with parts of the majority and with parts of the dissent. Thomas wrote, Today's decision must be recognized for what it is, an effort to avoid a politically controversial but legally correct decision. Roberts, however, also said that the administration can take up the issue again, a matter that was explicitly pointed out in one of the dissenting arguments. The court still does not resolve the question of DACA's rescission. Instead, it tells Department of Homeland Security to go back and try again, Alito wrote in his dissent. The decision was widely met with praise from various Democratic lawmakers, business leaders, and immigrant advocacy groups. So, um, to tell you a little bit more about DACA, the program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, um, it's an immigration policy that allows some individuals who are technically here illegally or unlawfully, um, it allows them, if they're brought into the country as kids, to receive what's basically a renewable two-year period of deferred action from deportation, and it allows them to get a work permit. So basically the idea is if you're brought in the country as a kid, you know, you you didn't do anything wrong and you probably know nothing else other than the United States of America. So you're brought in the country as a kid, then, you know, the government is not allowed to just shut down that program and say, you know what, we think it's perfectly okay to deport all of these 800,000 people who were brought here as kids and are here illegally, but on a work permit. Um, We think the Supreme Court is saying that the executive branch, the Trump administration, cannot just 
broadly decide we're going to end that program. And so now it's up to our whim and, and what our sensibilities are to deport any of those people that we want. I mean, I think that they would make the argument that, hey, we actually are legally allowed to deport any of them or all of them. But effectively what, what they're trying to do is say, um, we have the authority. Will they necessarily actually do it and deport all 800,000? No, I don't think so. But with Trump ending the DACA program, what he's saying is they have no legal protections. And so effectively they would have to like live in the shadows. Uh, and again, stop and think about the issue as such. If you're brought here as a kid, even if you're somebody who's rather conservative on the issue of immigration, you know, wouldn't you put the blame at the feet of the people who are, you know, adults that can make their own decisions and they decided to come here in an unlawful matter? Wouldn't you blame them? Why would you, you know, be angry at, mad at, and try to have legal repercussions for people who were brought here as kids through no fault of their own. So the point I'm trying to illustrate is that even if you're conservative on the issue of immigration, one would think that your ire would be saved for the people who come here unlawfully, not for their kids who had nothing to do with it and, you know, were just, if they had no choice, they were just kind of brought along for it, and now all they know is the United States of America. So... The Supreme Court is saying you cannot completely shut down the program. But here are the caveats, and this is, I think, really important because they're not saying the Trump administration has no authority to act on the issue of DACA. What was made crystal clear in the article is that they're saying the reasoning that Trump gave was not sufficient, so we're striking down part of what he wants to do. But they admit, and John Roberts admits, remember, he's a conservative justice who flipped on this issue but what he's saying is, if you want to go back to the drawing board and give a more compelling reason as to why you want to shut down the DACA program, then perhaps we'll let you shut down the DACA program. So it's not like when I first heard about how they ruled, my thought was, oh, okay, so I bet they ruled that it's unconstitutional for Trump to do this and the issue has to go through Congress, that Congress would have to decide to shut it down. But that's not what they said. They said, no, 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 Trump does have the authority to make this decision, but he cannot use the legal rationale that he used. Now, I submit to you guys, I don't know what his legal rationale was. Uh, I think that he just thinks he has the authority to shut down the program, and, you know, he might not even need a reason. Like, what do you mean? I'm president, so I'm the unitary executive, and this is something that doesn't involve the power of the purse, which is spending. All spending bills have to go through Congress. Therefore, I get to make the decision when it comes to, you know, an issue like immigration. And I think that what the Supreme Court is saying is, no, this issue is not like, you know, military issues where the president is the commander in chief and, and they ultimately get the final say on everything. When it comes to an issue like immigration, it's a little bit more of a complex picture. Perhaps, again, it doesn't all have to go through Congress, but whatever the rationale is that he used, the legal rationale, they said it's flimsy and, you know, it's too broad and we can't allow you to strike down the entire program. So from a political perspective, to not comment on the legal rationale uh, from the court here and to not comment on the constitutional grounds, obviously from a political perspective, you know, I think this is a good outcome in the sense that, listen, you have 800,000 people who were brought here as kids and all they've known is the United States of America. 
And if the conservative position is we want to get rid of them too, it's like, okay, well then don't come around telling everybody that your position on immigration is just we want to keep out the criminals, we want to keep out the bad people. Oftentimes you hear people on the right bring up like MS-13 and gangs and people who bring drugs into the country, and, and that's their argument. That's their rationale. Hey, this is why we got to be strong on the border and strong on immigration. You can't say that and then be in favor of ending a program like DACA because the, the 800,000 Dreamers, there's like, they're model citizens, and I mean that. I, we've gone through – I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but I remember covering stories – of, you know, statistics about the 800,000 Dreamers. And, you know, they're basically more successful than even native-born U.S. citizens. So, you know, in other words, they, they have very, very low crime rate, high, you know, graduation rate. Like, they're basically doing everything they can trying to live the American dream and to, to shut down a group of people who are, like, wholly productive for society and by all accounts, kind, loving people, it's just like needlessly cruel. So to not comment on the legal aspect of this case and to not comment on the constitutional aspect of this case, because I would need to know more about the specifics of the ruling, from a political perspective, of course I think this is, you know, a good thing. Now, here's where, you know, right-wingers are going to melt down over this, man, because um, they thought – and a lot of people who are on the right but don't love Trump still supported Trump for this very specific reason, which is, hey, at least he's giving us conservative judges and justices. And therefore, as a result of that, even though I might not totally agree with Trump, I'll suck it up and support him because I need those courts to go conservative. And then now you have you know, back-to-back decisions from the Supreme Court, which are you know, nominally on the left, protecting um, LGBTQ folks uh, and expanding non-discrimination protections to include them. That's one thing that, you know, the social conservatives didn't like. And now the social conservatives are not going to like this move, which protects immigrants. So the rationale for supporting Trump in their eyes is going away if you have these courts that they think are conservative, but then they end up not delivering on those conservative ideas. But what I will say to them is this. You guys got to understand the nature of the beast. And the nature of the beast is you will have, you will have the establishment, the status quo, kind of give in to the left on social issues in order to keep screwing you economically. So in other words, all these right-wing justices, I think you're out of your mind if you think that on economic issues, they're going to also break left. Hell no, they're not going to do that. That's the whole reason that they're on the court, functionally, is that um, they're going to represent big business. They're they're from these legal organizations which have a track record of horrendous decisions. Like it was either Brett Kavanaugh or or Gorsuch who ruled that a guy who was a truck driver who fled the truck because the AC broke or whatever and, and, you know, he ran out of gas or something – he left the truck to survive, and Kavanaugh ruled against that guy and said, no, you would have had to stay at the truck. So the people who fired that guy, Kavanaugh, or it was either Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, ruled with management and said, how dare you leave the truck? And the dude was like, I needed to survive. Like, what are you talking about? And, and they were like, no, we're siding with the managers. They have every right to fire you in a situation like that. So in other words, on economic issues across the board, 
they're going to go right, and they're going to be pro-corporate. And that's the real reason for these people being put uh, in these positions. Now, it's still mildly surprising that on some social issues they're going left, but not crazy surprising. Not crazy surprising. Um, And this is a a theme that you're going to see with corporations as well. Like you see corporations now going all in on Black Lives Matter stuff and pretending to be down with the protests and down with the struggle. And listen, they will give you everything you want on that front and tell you everything you want to hear on that front as long as you don't say to them, hey, dog, you got some sweatshops over in Cambodia or Vietnam. Like, what are you doing here? These working conditions are terrible. You just outsourced, you know, 23,000 American jobs. What's going on here? They will not give an inch when it comes to economics, when it comes to greed and the bottom line. But they'll give 100 yards when it comes to social issues, which leads me to believe that, you know, probably somewhere in the near future, we'll even get a situation where we do win the day on like the war on drugs, for example, and on legalizing marijuana. I think there will come a day where marijuana is legal in all 50 states, because the clear trend is that on social issues, the establishment is going to keep giving and giving and giving. And that, you know, the primary function of that kind of serves as Don't say a damn word about how we're screwing you when it comes to the economy, how we're robbing everybody blind on that front. So this is the same dynamic for this story as I outlined in the the protecting trans rights story. It's a good thing. Like, thank you. I'm happy that they protected trans rights. I'm happy that LGBTQ people are protected under non-discrimination clauses now. I'm happy that uh, the Dreamers are protected. I I think that's all wonderful. But don't get it twisted because some people are going to, be like, welcome to the resistance, John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch, yes! And it's like, no, you guys don't get it. You're, the, all the, they're still screwing everybody when it comes to the economy. So just because they g- give a little bit on social issues, that's not something that should uh, make you think they're good, full stop. They're certainly not good. So um, it's a good day for the Dreamers. I'm, I'm happy with the political outcome of this. And um, it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward with certain cases involving abortion, certain cases involving affirmative action, because, you know, they did break left on these social issues. Is it possible they break left on those social issues, too? Yes. Um, But don't kid yourself. It's also possible that on some social issues, they'll still break right. But you got a lot of angry conservatives out there today, or I should be clear, a lot of angry social conservatives out there today, a lot of angry Trump supporters out there today. Um, You know, Trump probably feels... Like a gut, like it's a gut punch a little bit because he keeps losing things that he could hold on to that he uses as talking points. Like, hey, conservative courts, conservative courts. Just like he used to talk about, hey, the unemployment rate's low, unemployment rate's low. Now that's slowly but surely going away, and there's another slap in the face. So he's reeling at the moment, and I think that that's crystal clear. Hope everybody's enjoying that loud, obnoxious, unnecessary banging, which is uh, the construction workers. But, yet again, there's nothing I could do about that, y'all. Okay. We are moving on. We are moving on. Let's talk about how miserable everybody is. How about that? So I have some new polls that paint a dire picture about the state of the USA. I'm going to share these with you here. Yet again, I'm going to warn you up front. We got some construction noise in the background. So uh, if that bothers you, I don't know what to tell you because there's nothing I can do to stop it. I wish I could. 
but I can't. Uh, and however loud you hear it, believe me, I hear it much louder here in the studio, so it's a little hard to focus. But anyway, I digress. So first, let's go to the Associated Press. It's been a rough year for the American psyche. Folks in the U.S. are more unhappy today than they've been in nearly 50 years. This bold yet unsurprising conclusion comes from the COVID response tracking study conducted by NORC at the University of Chicago. It finds that just 14% of American adults say they're very happy, just 14, down from 31% who said the same in 2018. So it was double in just 2018. That year, 23% said they'd often or sometimes felt isolated in recent weeks. Now, 50% say that. So we doubled the number of people who say they feel isolated. The survey conducted in late May draws on nearly a half century of research from the General Social Survey, which has collected data on American attitudes and behaviors at least every other year since 1972. Uh, no less than 29% of Americans have ever called themselves very happy in that survey. So, guys, that is, um, that's incredible. We only have 14% of American adults say they're very happy. Just 14%. That's really a historic low. Um, so, now adding on top of that, so we're all pretty miserable at the moment, and it's understandable why when you look at everything that's going on. It's just one thing after another, after another, after another. We just get, keep getting slapped in the face and getting our eyes spit in, um, and... That leads right into this next poll. Look at this. Those Americans who say they're, they are extremely or very proud to be Americans. You ready for this? In 2003, 92%. 2013, 85%. 2015, 81%. 2016, 81%. 2017, 75%. 2018, 72%. 2019, 70%. 2020, 63%. In 2003, almost every single American said, I'm extremely proud to be American. Now, you could say that's maybe slightly skewed because that was like we were attacked on 9-11, and historically when you're attacked, everybody kind of, you know, falls in line and becomes more patriotic and just kind of blindly supports our leaders. And so there is a feeling of national pride that comes about when you're under attack, when you're under assault. So you could say it's skewed slightly as a result of that. Um, but... Almost every American said they're extremely proud to be American. Fast forward to today, it dropped from 92% all the way to 63%. And it was a slow drop the entire time as the years went by. So, I mean, guys, listen, there are a couple ways to react to this. We know the way, the, the way that the right wing is going to react to it, or at least the ones, the talking heads on TV. You know, they're going to say, oh, would you look at that? I bet all those people who don't like America or aren't extremely proud of America, I bet you that they're lefties, and stupid lefties are unpatriotic. Um, and they're going to use this to say, like, oh, what a breakdown in society and moral values. And, like, they probably view this as something that is a moral failing of the people who say, I'm not extremely patriotic at the moment. Um, but the other way to react to it, and I think obviously this is a lot more nuanced and a lot more intelligent, is just try to figure out why the hell this is the case. Why has, have we gotten to the point where even as recently as 2013, 85% of people said they're you know, extremely or very proud to be Americans, and now it's 63%. I mean, if you dive into it, I'm sure you get perfectly reasonable responses from people. 
Um, you know, guys, we're looking at a situation where the entire political system is built to screw us. And I think people are catching on to that reality, which is why when you look at the approval rating of Congress, for example, we bring this up all the time on the show, but the approval rating for Congress is usually around 20-some-odd percent, 20-some-odd percent. So you're talking about an elected body that you pick, and then a couple months later they ask, hey, what do you think of these guys? And everybody's like, I hate them. I think they're terrible. Because everybody knows you're picking from the lesser of two evils virtually every single time you go to the voting booth. So people know the system's not working for them. People know it's rigged in favor of the top 1% and the wealthy and corporations. People know that there's you know, rampant outsourcing of jobs going on and people are getting screwed as a result of it. They know that our infrastructure is falling apart. It's embarrassing. It's pathetic. We get a grade of D plus according to the Society of Civil Engineers, which tracks this thing on a regular basis. Um, our airports are falling apart. You know, every time I go to an airport here, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is so disgusting. Um, what is there at the moment to really hang on to? The thing that I always bring up, which is my favorite thing about this country, is the First Amendment of the Constitution. I think it's wonderful. Free speech, free protest, uh, freedom of religion, that's all wonderful. But even that's under attack now. With Trump, I'm going to do the Insurrection Act to put down the protests, and thank God it looks like it's not actually going to follow through on it. But he's threatening to just totally ignore the First Amendment and deploy the U.S. military on our own streets. It's like by the day, there are fewer and fewer things to hold on to to say, hey, well, at least we got that. And so there's a perfectly reasonable explanation. People are getting absolutely hosed, man. When you have what basically has been the total destruction of the working class, the middle class, more and more people are falling into poverty. You know, we've discussed the numbers on the show, but like nearly 80% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. And now we have a situation with COVID-19 and our response was literally the worst in the world. I mean, Somehow Germany's unemployment rate is still around 4%. They were, they're dealing with COVID just like we are. Us, the real unemployment rate is over 20%. So people are losing their jobs. People who have their jobs are getting, you know, are getting less money. Um, you got, people were already in dire straits before the crash. We've done full corporate socialism for, for corporations. You had the Fed coming in to prop up the stock market and investors. Again, while regular people got crumbs, a one-time payment of $1,200, the second they allow evictions and foreclosures again, there's going to be millions and millions of people who are evicted and foreclosed on. What is there at the moment to hang on to? That's a sincere question I have for everybody. I mean, I guess you get the answers like, you know, I'm a fan of professional sports and they're coming back soon. I mean, that, like, that's literally as far as you have to go in order to make a point where it's like, wow, I'm feeling extremely patriotic at the moment. Never mind, I even bring up the George Floyd killing and police brutality and how that's a major issue now. And we got videos of cops cracking skulls offensively. They're being aggressive. New videos of that like every single day. So what is there at the moment to hang on to? That's a serious question. Go ahead. Answer it in your own head. What is there to hang on to at the moment to, to say, hey, there's a light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, well, in 2020, we have an election and we can get rid of Donald Trump and replace him with Joe Biden. You're going to be doing cartwheels for Joe Biden? Is that what you're going to do? I mean, come on, man. So there's nothing. I sound like Joe Biden when I say that. Come on, man. Um, so there's nothing. And you see the logical progression here from a high of 92% in 2003 
all the way down to 63% now. Like I said, the feelings of people who are very happy, only 14% of the country is very happy. Now, listen, a lot of this stuff you could say, sure, it's beyond everybody's control, or at least it's to some extent in active nature. But even in those situations, like with COVID-19, we could have handled it a lot better, and we didn't. So certainly in my lifetime, I think this is the biggest mess I've ever seen. You know, I graduated into the worst economy since the Great Depression. I graduated in, in 2010, right into the heart of the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Things were bleak, man. And then now I think about what people are like today, graduating today into this economy, where you have the real unemployment rate is over 20%. And just everything feels like society is coming apart at the seams. Everything is just crumbling right in front of our eyes. And I feel for the next generation and what, what they have to deal with. And I ha- again, I haven't even mentioned like climate change, for example. And climate change, obviously, is probably the number one issue for the survival of the human race in the long term. And, like, I hadn't even breached that yet. So I think there's a, there's a real feeling, a real sense of pessimism at the moment, and it's perfectly rational and logical. So I'm not going to look at these numbers and try to judge people who said this. I'm looking at this and trying to figure out how and why they came to this conclusion, how and why they feel this way, how and why there's been a drop of how much? 63, 70, 30, 30 points, right? Yeah, about 30 points. I'm so bad at math. <laughs> and that hammering is starting to get under my skin. But anyway, a drop of 30 points in feelings of patriotism and only 14% of the country feeling very happy. I don't know what to tell you guys, man, but we need some major change and we need it now. And I don't know if this country is up for it. We're watching steady imperial decline happening right in front of our eyes. And I wish I could put a little cherry on top at the end of this story for you, but I don't have it. In fact, I, I would guess that as time goes by, these numbers are going to get even worse because I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And just wait until the market, which has been fully socialized, wait until that also, yet again, fails and tanks because that's going to happen as well. And then at some point, it's just going to be like, oh, so we're just throwing monopoly money at the market at this point because even, even our attempts to fully prop it up are not working. So, again, you think it's bad now? It could get a hell of a lot worse. And prepare yourself for that because I think that's where it's going. Okay, next. I think it's wonderful that there's nonstop banging in the background. I think that's really a great thing that everybody's really going to love. What do you guys think about that? (laughs) All right, we're going to go to John Bolton and his absolutely shitty, ridiculous... um, book. Let me take a sip of my seltzer first. All right, here we go. Former foreign policy advisor to Trump or national security expert, whatever the hell his title was, um, John Bolton, he's out with a new book. And um, here are just some of the juicy claims that he made, and then we'll discuss. Bolton attributes a litany of shocking statements to the president. Trump said invading Venezuela would be, quote, cool, and that the South American nation was really part of the United States. Bolton says Trump kept confusing the current and former presidents of Afghanistan while asking Japanese Prime Minister 
Shinzo Abe to help him strike a deal with Iran. And Trump told Xi that Americans were clamoring for him to change the constitutional rules to serve more than two terms, according to the book. He also describes a summer 2019 meeting in New Jersey where Trump says journalists should be jailed so they have to divulge their sources. Quote, these people should be executed. They are scumbags, Trump said, according to Bolton's account. Okay, so let's take these claims one by one here. Let's go to the top. Uh, Trump said that invading Venezuela would be cool and that, South, and that um, the South American nation was really part of the United States. Listen, I know that this is unpopular to say at the moment because everybody's having their, you know, uh, anti-Trump orgy at the moment and they're like loving every second of this goofy book. But John Bolton is literally one of the least trustworthy men in America. I trust John Bolton even less than I trust Donald Trump. And I don't trust Donald Trump at all. So understand who this guy is, just so everybody understands. He's a Bush era psychopathic war criminal with blood on his hands. None of that is an exaggeration. That is all true. He, and, and the crazy thing is, on the Democratic side, people used to understand that, that this guy has zero credibility. Now, all of a sudden, every word he speaks is gospel because they don't like Trump. Listen, I don't like Trump either, but that doesn't mean I throw out my critical sk- thinking skills. Critical stinking skills? Okay, that sounded weird. Critical thinking skills. And unfortunately, a lot of people do that because they feel like, ooh, this is juicy and I can burn Trump with this, so let me use it. But you have to, at the very least, be agnostic about what he's saying here. I'm not saying you have to take the position that everything John Bolton is saying is BS, although I've got to be honest with you guys, I lean in the direction of thinking it's probably BS. But at the very least, you have to be agnostic because he's a goddamn war criminal and he's not trustworthy. He's not demonstrated a single reason for us to believe that what he's saying is true. He's a... He's most known for lying. He was one of the people that lied us into the Iraq war. He obviously has no principled stance against lying. He loves lying. He's a psychopathic war criminal liar. So let's get that out of the way. Now, again, I want to go one by one through these claims here, but um, the idea that Bolton is trying to burn Trump because Trump said it would be cool to invade Venezuela, one of the reasons I don't believe that is because John Bolton wants to invade Venezuela. John, John Bolton also wants to invade Iran. He's on the record as taking these positions. So now all of a sudden, when he's no longer part of the administration, he's going to write a tell-all book where he says, and I can't believe Trump said that it would be cool to invade Venezuela. What are you talking about? If he said that, you would have been cheering him on. You would have been behind the scenes like, that's exactly what I want to do. Yes, Mr. President, let's go do that. Let's go do that right this second. So, like, even his own beliefs here, even if Trump is nominally expressing... Bolton's own beliefs here, Bolton is going to use that to try to burn Trump? No, no, no. That makes absolutely no sense. Um, and the idea that Trump said, oh, Venezuela is really part of the United States, I, I don't think that he said that. Um, and it seems really hyperbolic. And it's almost so stupid that it's a parody of what somebody would think Trump would say. And, and Bolton is just kind of feeding into that narrative. Um, then he says, Bolton... Bolton says Trump kept confusing the current and former presidents of Afghanistan while asking Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to help him strike a deal with Iran. By the way, even if he did that one, I'm not, why is that so, like, you're the president of the United States. There's over 100 countries in the world, probably, what, maybe even over 200 or just under 200 countries in the world. You're not going to remember all of their names. Now, 
The fact that he confused the current one and the former one, guys, I've done that. I've done that multiple times on this show when I'm covering the story and I bring up, you know, uh, I usually did it with, with Iraq. Um, I would bring up the name of the prime minister, and I'm blanking on his name right now, the former prime minister, and that guy was already gone. And it's like, so, okay, so he did that. I get it. He's the president. He's supposed to be more above that. But it seems like he's going out of his way to try to be like, aha, gotcha. It's like he's got a bone to pick with Trump. Um, Then they say, Trump told Xi that Americans were clamoring for him to change the constitutional rules to serve more than two terms, according to the book. I could see Trump saying something like that, but at the same time, I don't know if he would actually do it. Like, this is just classic Trump of trying to act like, you know, oh, people love me. I'm so amazing. I'm so tremendous. And maybe he saw a couple tweets at him that were like, Mr. President, I wish you could serve, you know, five terms, sir. Or that, or he's just making it up in his own mind, because sometimes he does that for narcissistic reasons. Trump makes up a lot of stuff. But yeah, even even if this one is true, um, I'm not surprised by that, and there's a difference between saying, oh, people want me to do this, and, like, actually trying to do it. Um, And then when he describes the meeting in New Jersey where Trump says journalists should be jailed so they have to divulge their sources, quote, these people should be executed. They are scumbags, Trump said, according to Bolton's account. Um, If John Bolton was so convinced that Trump is this, like, fascist authoritarian who would kill journalists, then wouldn't John Bolton not write a book where he's shitting on Trump throughout the entire book because he would fear for his own safety? This idea of like, oh my God, he's so unhinged and he, would, he said he wants to kill journalists and that they're scumbags. Oh my God. Well, then wouldn't you be scared to, to release this book where you're going after Trump relentlessly? It seems like you release the book and you know that there's not going to be too many consequences, certainly not consequences where you're physically in danger. Now, it is the case that the Department of Justice is trying to stop the book from being sold, and what they're claiming is, oh, he's releasing classified information. So we can't let him say this stuff because he's releasing classified information. Trump kind of gives away a little bit of his hand there, though, because when you make that argument, that implies that a lot of the stuff that Bolton is saying is true. If you say, oh, man, this is, you know, you're, this is top secret classified stuff, and you're releasing it, you're not allowed to do that, that's illegal. Well, then there's an admission that the stuff in there is actually happened and is real. So he didn't really, in typical Trump fashion, he didn't really think through, you know, why he would do this, but he doesn't want to be embarrassed. So he's just like, hey, let's stop this thing. But listen, I'm principled when it comes to this issue of transparency. I think John Bolton should be able to write the book if he wants to write the book. I just won't believe the overwhelming majority of the claims that he makes because John Bolton is a notorious liar. Um, So in summation, And I got another story with other claims because the claims are so bombastic that you have to talk about them. But um, my position on this overall is that I kind of default to thinking that Bolton is lying um, in most instances because he's a notorious liar. However, there probably are little bits and pieces of truth or like half truths in there. And you got to kind of and you have to try to like parse through it and go point for point. But I think anybody who's swallowing this thing whole, anybody who's looking at this and going, yeah, I'm sure every word of it is true, I think you're such a sucker and you have basically Trump derangement syndrome in the same way that people during the Obama era had Obama derangement syndrome where there's nothing he could do that they would give him credit for. When Obama was doing conservative policies, conservative policies, the conservatives weren't like, hey, we agree. They were like, ah, now I'm against that. 
because they're stupid and they have Obama derangement syndrome. People who take every claim in this book like it's gospel, they have Trump derangement syndrome because a lot of this stuff is so bombastic and so over the top. I simply don't believe it. Um, little bits and pieces I do believe, but again, you got to go issue for issue. And I, there are few people in this world who I trust less than Trump, but John Bolton is definitely one of those people. All right, next. So we have new big stories out today from John Bolton's book, which just came out or is about to come out. Um, This one is reported in The Hill. President Trump solicited President Xi Jinping's assistance in winning re-election, according to a forthcoming book from former White House National Security Advisor John Bolton. Bolton describes an exchange that took place at the Group of 20 G20 Summit in June in his new book, The Room Where It Happened. During the exchange with Trump, she referenced unnamed American political figures who were too critical of Beijing and were threatening the U.S.-China relationship. Whether she meant to finger the Democrats or some of us sitting on the U.S. side of the table, I don't know, but Trump immediately assumed that she meant the Democrats, Bolton wrote, according to an excerpt of the book published in the Wall Street Journal. Trump said approvingly that there was great hostility to China among the Democrats. Trump then stunningly turned the conversation to the coming U.S. presidential election, alluding to China's economic uh, capability and pleading with Xi to ensure he'd win. Bolton wrote, he stressed the importance of farmers and increased Chinese purchase of soybeans and wheat in the electoral outcome. I would print Trump's exact words, but the government's pre-publication review process has decided otherwise. Okay, so um, I'm not buying what Bolton is saying here. I, at the very least, I think he's misconstruing it or exaggerating it. If Trump ended up saying that last part, and that last part is, hey, listen, China, we want you to you know, buy more goods from us. We want you to, whatever it is, soybeans, get soybeans from our amazing, tremendous farmers. They're so wonderful. They're so special. I'd love it if we could do more business. I'd love it if instead of importing everything that you build, you took some of what we ship out of our country, our lovely, beautiful country. I think that part rings true to me, that Trump would say something like that. But as I read that, I go, that's the job of the president. Like, if you have a U.S. president, they're supposed to represent U.S. interests, and they're supposed to... So what he's trying to do here is have the U.S. export more goods to China, because that would nominally be good for the economy and for our workers and for our companies. So I read that, and I go, I, that's, any president would do, would do that. Or if they're a president that's doing their job, they would do that. I'm sure there are some presidents who don't care at all about, you know, U.S. workers, U.S. companies, and the fact that, you know, I think it's a good thing if, we're, if we export a lot of goods, and it's good for our economy. It's good for production here. So I'm sure there's some presidents who don't care about that, but Trump seemingly does care about that, at least in the context of he cares about getting reelected, so he wants, he wants more U.S. exports because he thinks that helps in the process of him getting reelected. But John Bolton is making it seem like Trump said, okay, so China, you're going to hack the voting booths, right? Okay, but I highly, highly, highly doubt. I know Trump is dumb. I think there's basically a 0% chance that Trump was like, 
So President Xi, listen, I need your help in the upcoming re-election, and whatever you can do to help, I'd really appreciate it. It seems like his point was, hey, um, yes, there are other people who are more hawkish and more anti-China than me, and I want to do business with you. I want to outsource U.S. products to you. And if you buy those U.S. products, then it's going to be good for you in the long run because then I'll get reelected, and then we'll continue to have a business relationship. Now, there are criticisms there. Like, I think it's funny because publicly he does this, you know, I'm tough on China thing where he acts like, um, you know, I'm going to do protectionism and tariffs, and I'm going to stand up to them because they've been taking advantage of us for too long. And then I don't doubt that when he's in meetings with them, that tune changes, and it's a lot more conciliatory, and it's a lot more negotiation, and it's a lot more let's do things that are mutually beneficial. I'm sure that's the case. But the idea that Bolton's getting out here, that he's trying to make Russia gate China gate. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, oh, just like he wanted Russia and Vladimir Putin to steal the election for him, and Trump would be a Manchurian candidate of Vladimir Putin, he did the same thing with China. He's trying, he's trying to get them to help him with his reelection. But John, if the if the thing that he's doing to try to get help for his reelection is increase U.S. exports, that is categorically different than asking somebody to hack into voting machines and change the votes or whatever. And even according to your account, he didn't say that, but you're implying that he did. And then they, you know, he says, oh, the government's stopping me from telling the whole truth. By the way, John Bolton wanted Chelsea Manning executed, executed for releasing classified information. And then in this book, John Bolton releases classified information. Now listen, I'm consistent. I think John Bolton has every right to write this book, and I obviously support Chelsea Manning, and I support Julian Assange, and I support Edward Snowden, and I support support whistleblowers. I support transparency in government, so I'm totally fine with John Bolton writing this book. But you're a sucker if you believe every word of this book. He's a notorious liar. This is the guy who lied us into the Iraq war, and now I'm supposed to believe when he writes an anti-Trump book that every word he's saying is the truth? I highly doubt it. Again, some things are probably true. I would guess that probably most things are false, or at the very least, they're half-truths that he spins for his own political ends. Now, this gets to the main question. Why is he writing an anti-Trump book? I don't think it all comes down to they just had personality clashes and disagreements on that front. No. I think... The main reason why he wrote this book is because John Bolton wanted Trump to be way, way, way more hawkish than he is, and Trump wasn't. Now, Trump is still a hawk. Don't get it twisted. He is still a hawk. But there was some good reporting that came out about how, and in the book he even admits this, he says his biggest disagreement with Trump was when Trump called off an attack on Iran at the last minute. Now, ultimately, Trump did do an attack and killed Qasem Soleimani, uh, the general, but, and I'm against that. That was terrible. I think it was one of the worst things Trump did, and it could have sparked, beyond an international crisis, it could have sparked another giant war. But there was a time before that, like a month or so before that, where they had the intelligence that they knew where Soleimani was, but there would have been like a dozen Ir- Iranian soldiers who died along with Soleimani, So Trump was going to do it, and then at the last minute he said, I'm calling her off, I don't want to do it. John Bolton says, my biggest disagreement with Trump was that he didn't pull the trigger then. Was that he didn't, and Trump's reasoning was, I don't want to kill the 12 other Iranian soldiers, because then I think there's a very good chance that we go to war. So 
John Bolton, his main issue with Trump is that Donald Trump wasn't hawkish enough. Donald Trump increased drone strikes 432%. That's not enough for him. Donald Trump ripped up the Iran deal. That's not enough for him. Donald Trump keeps sanctioning Venezuela like crazy to the point where the civilians, the citizens, are getting absolutely obliterated. That's not enough for him. Donald Trump continues Iraq and Afghanistan and keeps the status quo going, keeps bombing eight different countries. That's not enough for Bolton. What does Bolton want? He wants an actual hot war against Venezuela, and he wants a hot war against Iran, and he wanted, you know, North Korea as well. This guy's never been a war he didn't like. He hated the fact that Trump actually did diplomacy with North Korea. And so the hawk's hawk, the biggest neocon in the country was part of the Trump administration, and the reason why he doesn't like Trump is because Trump wasn't hawkish enough. And so that's why he's writing this book, because he is, for all of his flaws, John Bolton, you bet your ass he's an ideologue. And he's an American exceptionalist and a neoconservative to his core. He believes it like a fundamentalist religion. He thinks we run the world. He thinks we should run the world. He thinks we should be the, nat- the international bully. Okay, that's what he thinks. So that's where the, I think the heart of their disagreement comes from. There could also be some personality clashes. I don't deny that at all. But the fact that that guy, whose main position and main gripe is Trump didn't do enough war. The fact that that guy's telling me all these terrible things about Trump makes me go, eh, you lied us into the Iraq war. You're a known liar. You're a known psychopathic, bloodthirsty war criminal. I'm not buying what you're saying. Again, I'll look through the book, and and I think you do have to go on a case-by-case basis. Some of the criticisms of Trump ring kind of true, but a lot of this stuff seems like giant stretches. A lot of this stuff seems totally made up to me. And... Like, the claim that he's trying to make here, he's implying that Trump is, just like with Russiagate, where he was doing Vladimir Putin's bidding, even though he wasn't, oh, now there's Chinagate, and, you know, Trump was asking for help with this election. Well, no, it sounds like what he was asking for was to increase U.S. exports, and you're spinning that as like, oh, my God, this is so obscene and not right. Again, because he's the biggest hawk of them all. He also doesn't want to have, you know, he also wants to be hawkish and aggressive with China, this guy would get us in World War III in an instant if he was really running the show, John Bolden. And I think his, he's angry at Trump specifically because he wasn't hawkish enough. So, again, my main point here is you have to take everything he says with a grain of salt because he's a war criminal. Okay? He's a war criminal. He's a known, proven liar. And just because you don't like Trump and Trump's a liar doesn't mean that everything Bolton says is automatically true. And I have to say, there are a lot of people who are – just buying this hook, line, and sinker, and it's driving me crazy. Like, are you guys forgetting everything about John Bolton? John Bolton, there's few people in this world, in this country, who are worse than Donald Trump. I'm very comfortable saying John Bolton is way worse than Trump. So for everybody who's taking this because they get to burn Trump, it's just so sad. Like, use your brain a little bit. Obviously, everything he's saying is not true. This guy has no scruples, no morals. So anyway, uh, I'm not buying this claim. There's a bunch of claims I'm not buying. Some of them ring true, but um, ultimately I think this is a stretch. Now, Trump and the Department of Justice are trying to stop the book because they're saying, oh, my God, there's classified information. I hate the way that Washington works because anytime there's something that they want to leak, if it's classified information, they're like, yeah, here, we'll leak it because it makes us look good. Have a field day, press. If there's stuff that they don't like about them and it gets leaked, oh, my God, they'll throw the book at you. Again, look at... Chelsea Manning, look at Julian Assange, look at Edward Snowden. Look, 
if you embarrass them, oh, my God, then they'll throw the book at you. So it looks like Trump will probably throw the book at Bolton. Now, I think both things are true at the same time, that Bolton has every right to write this book, okay? And I, I think there should be no legal penalty for that at all. The government should not go after him at all. But I also think at the same time that a lot of this stuff, probably most of the stuff in the book, is complete BS. Both of those things can be true at the same time. He has a legal right to publish this, and the government should have no standing to come after him because that would violate freedom of speech. And I believe in government transparency, so I think it's a good thing. But at the same time, I think it's mostly BS. I think both those things are true. And unfortunately, I don't think that uh, many people are going to have that position that I just explained. All right, next. So here we have a new anti-Trump ad. Um, Let's take a look, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the people who made it. Something's wrong with Donald Trump. He's shaky, weak, trouble speaking, trouble walking. So why aren't we talking about this? And why isn't the press covering Trump's secretive midnight run to Walter Reed Medical Center? Why do so many reporters who cover the White House pretend they can't see Trump's decline? The most powerful office in the world needs more than a weak, unfit, shaky president. Trump doesn't have the strength to lead, nor the character to admit it. We're not doctors, but we're not blind. It's time we talk about this. Trump Again, I'll tell you about the people who made that ad in a second, but just up front, I think that ad is incredibly stupid because, listen, every single claim you just made against Donald Trump there can be leveled at Joe Biden and then some, okay? Joe Biden is barely coherent, sometimes not coherent at all. I honestly believe that they fed him some drugs before his debate with Bernie Sanders to keep him good for a solid two hours. Um, He's in cognitive decline. I think it's relatively sharp cognitive decline. So I think that to, to go down this road of like, what about your health? What about your stability? Are you fit for being president? What's going on here? I don't think you're doing well. If you open that door, oh, my God, we're going to have a field day because both of these guys, I think that they both have some issues, okay? But I, I honestly believe that when it comes to the cognitive department, that even though I might ideologically align more with Biden than I do with Trump, I still think that he's in sharper cognitive decline than Trump is. So, like, why are you opening this door? Why are, you, why are we having this conversation? Why are you making it about this as opposed to any of the other things you can make it about if you're running an attack ad uh, and it's politics? Make it about policy. But they didn't. Now, who made this ad? Well, the Lincoln Project is the name you saw at the end of the, of the ad there. Who's the Lincoln Project? The Lincoln Project, it's all these former Republicans, or even some of them are current Republicans, who are anti-Trump Republicans. So it's, there's a reason why they don't bring up ideology. They don't bring up policy. They don't bring up the real-world harms that Trump is doing. Because in all seriousness, what you find with most of these elitist Republicans who are anti-Trump is that the only thing they object to, the only thing they object to, is that he's crude, and he has no decorum and no civility, and he has no filter, and he tweets off the cuff, and he doesn't look like a president, he doesn't act like a president, and he's incompetent. Those are the things that the Republicans don't like. 
Do these elitist Republicans who are part of this group, do they have a principled disagreement with Donald Trump when it comes to his 2017 tax cut bill and deregulation? No. Do they have a disagreement with Trump continuing all the wars that he's continuing? No. Do they even disagree with his wall necessarily? No. So they don't. The idea that there's ideological disagreement, it's not true. There's ideological agreement. But they want to put a smiley face and a happy face on the U.S. empire. That's what they want to do. And so, listen, man, I think that this kind of stuff is embarrassing. And I think that um, the saddest thing to me is when you see people who are Democrats, people who are on the left, kind of take any argument that's used against Trump and they just bolster it because it's an argument used against Trump. So in their mind, is definition correct just because they don't like Trump? It's like, no, you gotta, you got to be more potent than that and more intelligent than that and craft arguments as if you're genuinely trying to convince people who are on the fence or people who, don't di- or people who disagree with you. If, if everybody acted like that in public discourse, we'd be so much better off. If every time people were making arguments or crafting ads that they made it so that, hey, I'm trying to convince somebody who's on the fence or I'm trying to convince somebody who doesn't agree with me necessarily, then you'd get a lot more convincing arguments. Instead, this is like, you know, a bunch of people on the, the res- hashtag resistance uh, establishment Democratic bubble sucking themselves off, thinking that this is like the best attack ad ever. And you got a bunch of lame Republicans who agree with Trump on policy who are like, is, he, is Trump doing well? I don't know. Yeah, okay. So Trump might be struggling a little bit. I think Trump's issue, by the way, is more that he does, uh, he does drugs, like he does speed. <laughs> he does uppers, and that, like, affects him sometimes. So I think that that's his biggest issue. But again... You really want to have that conversation? Say a little something about Joe Biden. You're going to try to look me in the eye and tell me you think Joe Biden's doing all hunky-dory and he's all there and it's the same Joe Biden that we saw in the 2012 debate against Paul Ryan? Please, son. Please, fall back with your stupidity. I hate this. This ad is so dumb. Give me something tangible, dog. Give me something tangible. Guys, I'll just give you one fact. Let me give you one fact. Just one. We have, right now, a pandemic happening. We already had about 28 million people who didn't have health insurance. Now you have to add at least another 20 million on top of the 28 million who didn't have health insurance. Where's your attack ad on that? Before COVID-19 even hit under Trump, between 7 and 9 million people lost their health insurance. You could craft an ad with that fact alone, ladies and gentlemen, that fact alone. But they didn't because it's substantive and they don't really care. They'd rather play this stupid partisan game. And it's annoying and it's obnoxious. And I don't know how anybody watches this and thinks they're nailing it. Okay. I'm going to take a quick break. Hopefully the construction noise gets out of the way while I'm gone. (laughs) When I come back, we're going to talk about the unemployment situation in Kentucky, which is an absolute mess. Um, We're going to talk about coronavirus price gouging, and later on in the show, we have um, corporations are now using the issue of free speech to try to get away with fraud. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all that and much more.
Alright, I'm back, bitch. Hopefully you've been enjoying your construction noise. Oh, here we go. Even more. Now we got the drills out. Now we got the drills out. Okay. I really want this construction to end. It's driving me crazy. On YouTube, it's not as bad, but I hear it, and it drives me crazy. Um, all right, so we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in Kentucky. There's a very disheartening story coming out of Kentucky about the state of the economy. So this is from Daniel Desrochers, and uh, he works for the Herald Leader, which is a Kentucky publication. He says, the state police said it will be an eight-hour wait from the back of the line to speak to a state employee about unemployment. And then you can see that this line is basically like – Probably one of the longest lines I've ever seen for anything. Absolutely one of the longest lines I've ever seen when it comes to trying to get unemployment benefits. So this is – now, I don't know if this is a problem that's specific to Kentucky. In other words, are there other states that have a similar problem where they're so backlogged with unemployment claims that you have these lines forming and you have these people who are desperate and trying to call up all the time. I'm sure that other states are having severe problems as well. So I'm not trying to single out Kentucky here, but Kentucky is a very solid example of what's happening out there. And look at this. There are 8,000, 8,000 unemployment claims that have gone unanswered. This is all backlog from COVID and from the economy absolutely imploding. And now we have a situation where every state has opened up to one degree or another. So they're trying to get the economy back to normal. And even given that, we just got the news today that there was another 1.5 million people who are unemployed, which, guys, that beats the old record before COVID. Every single week, every single month, it's a new record. So just so everybody understands, during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, the highest they got, it was maybe 680,000 unemployment claims in one week. And then now we have 1.5 million that we just got, and they're saying it's a victory. They're acting like, well, could have been 3 million or 6 million. So now more unemployment, even with the economy opening up, I'm telling you, this is like a perfect storm, and we're in for quite a disaster And the new thing that occurred to me, which is scaring me like you wouldn't believe, is that look at what we did for the stock market. Look at what we did for investors and corporations. We've basically fully socialized the stock market. And even with that, even with the Federal Reserve and the federal government saying, corporations and investors, we will not let you fail, even with that, we still might have a gigantic economic crash. Like, we're all, the regular people are already feeling the economic crash, but what I'm saying is, what happens if the market crashes even with all of the endless support 
I don't even know what happens in that situation because at that point it becomes clear that the U.S. dollar is monopoly money. Like, it's not real. The fact that the Fed was pumping a trillion dollars of liquidity per day into the market was scary enough. It had the effect that they wanted where the market was propped up, investors were propped up. The so-called CARES Act from Congress, $5 trillion to the corporations, that helped them. But what happens when even after this attempt to fully socialize the stock market and save corporations, what happens when even that goes belly up? You're gonna have, the regular people, people are already feeling the pain, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to be compounded by another crash, even with the market being fully socialized. At some point, at some point, you run out of tricks. So, I mean, look at this. This is modern-day breadlines we're talking about here. This is like, this is new Great Depression-type stuff. 8,000 unemployment claims unanswered in Kentucky alone. Imagine what it's like in a bunch of other states because these systems are backlogged. They're overburdened. They're, they're ancient. Guys, if, if they don't do... If they don't do a universal basic income program, if they don't do Medicare for all, I really do fear what happens with this country. Because I have to tell you, everything happening with the George Floyd protest now, yes, a lot of that has to do with police brutality. And Black Lives Matter is, is kind of out front on this stuff. But at the same time, man, don't get it twisted. I do not think that that would have been the spark that led to the wildfire had it not been for everything else going on around the country. You can't have nearly 80% of the country living paycheck to paycheck. A giant pandemic and economic crisis and Great Depression, you can't have all that happen and, and not have it attributable to that. Like, all of that played a role. All of that was vital in leading to these massive demonstrations that are still ongoing right now. Because there's going to be societal unrest when the fabric of civilization comes apart at the seams. And that's what we're seeing. When you have over 20% real unemployment, when you have 80% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, when you have no real material support for people in this time of crisis, what do you think is going to happen? Of course there's going to be social unrest, and it's going to manifest in a bunch of different ways. And one of the ways we saw was that police brutality was the spark that got a lot of people out there. But there's a lot of underlying feelings of poverty and degradation and misery that are being expressed through these movements. And I'll say it again, man, but Germany temporarily nationalized wages in the wake of this, in the wake of COVID, and their unemployment rate is about 4%. 4%. We were around 4% or 3% or 4% uh, before this happened, and now the real unemployment rate is over 20%. I think the official one, which is, of course, rigged and BS, is like 13%. But think about that. We could have had a situation where we kept it at 4%, but they didn't want to actually help the people. They wanted to do the appearance of helping the people while really just helping corporations and the wealthy. They were first in line for the bailout. This is what you get when you have an oligarchy and a kleptocracy and rampant corruption. And, you know, we're living through a historical period, guys. I just want everybody to understand that. Like, we may have looked back at people who lived through the Great Depression like, wow, you lived through the Great Depression? You lived through World War II? Holy cow. Let me tell you something. 
people who are not born yet, you're going to be telling them when you're old and gray and a grandpa in your rocking chair, you're going to be talking about how, yeah, yeah, we lived through uh, COVID-19 and then we lived through the economic depression and it was absolutely miserable. And here, let me show you some line. Let me show you the unemployment line from Kentucky in that time frame. I don't think, and, and the crazy thing is, guys, I don't think the leaders fully grasp the gravity of the situation because people like Pelosi, people like Schumer, people like Steve Mnuchin and Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, they're all living on their high horse. They're all totally out of touch and cushioned from the reality of what it's like to be a regular American. And at some point, reality always rears its ugly head. And so they're going to get a rude awakening. It's just a matter of how and when. They already got a little taste of it with these, with these protests, but I think it's going to get a lot worse. I think it's going to get a lot more unstable, and who knows where this ends up. Okay, next. So this story alone really sums up American healthcare. This is American healthcare summed up in a single tweet. It says so much. This is from a New York Times reporter, and she says, a lab in Texas had charged as much as $2,315 for coronavirus tests. After I called to ask about their prices, they lowered their charge to $300 and reversed all claims billed at the $2,000 rate. All right, so... Let me tell you some more. Patients in the short run are somewhat protected from this because um, the coronavirus testing bills, as of right now, the federal government says, we set aside a billion dollars, we're going to pick up the tab for uninsured people who get the test. And for, the, for insured people, um, federal laws require that every health plan now covers the full costs of coronavirus testing um, without a deductible and without a copayment. So that's all good, but don't get too crazy here giving credit to the system because it's only testing. It's not treatment that's covered. So they say, oh, yeah, oh, well, obviously the testing should be free. Obviously. Well, why shouldn't the treatment be free then? Even more so the treatment should be free, if you ask me. So you test, you find out you have it. Okay, it's on us. It's free that you know you have it. <laughs> but you're on your own for the actual treatment. What? So th- that's insane. But at least people are covered for... Um, the treatment at the moment. So this is an instance, usually when we cover healthcare stories, we're covering how insurance companies are ripping people off, pharmaceutical companies are ripping people off. This is not an instance of that. This is actually an instance of a diagnostics lab in suburban Dallas ripping off insurance companies. So the whole, like the whole system, it's just one scam after another scam after another scam after another scam. Our entire healthcare system is nothing but one giant scam. Everybody's scamming each other. Every, and the, the person who ends up getting screwed every single time, not every single time, as a general rule, except in this story, is the patient, is the person, is the average American. It's the companies that are, you know, robbing everybody. And again, this is an instance of a diagnostics lab robbing the insurance companies and saying, oh, yeah, so this coronavirus test that we're giving out to people, we're going to bill insurance companies $2,315 for this. Why are you billing them that much money? Well, my guess is they thought they could get away with price gouging. They thought they could get away with robbing the insurance companies. They thought nobody would notice. And then all it took 
And by the way, massive credit to this journalist actually doing good work. All it took was one journalist reaching out and saying, hey, what's up with this? $2,315 for coronavirus tests. I don't understand that at all. Where are you getting that number from? Can you explain to me how you came to that number? Can you show me the procedure? Can you show me the process? Can you show me how much it costs you? Can you show me, you know, why you're billing this much to the health insurance companies? I don't understand. And then immediately when they got caught, they were like, oh, see, 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 see what I did with the thing with the, if you look at the, with the sun, if the sun's in your eyes and you can't really make out the number, if you carry the seven and divide by six, what you're going to find out is that with the decimal point moving, eventually what had happened was there was the mistake in billing, and it's got to be Jerry's new. Jerry's new. He's in billing. He's been working in billing. And so re- really when we said $2,315 for the test, he meant to say 300 He meant to say 300 okay? It's a 300 Get off my butt. All right? We're good now? Please don't, like, get me in trouble for price gouging in the middle of a crisis. So this is what's going on, man. And, you know, again, this is a rare story of actually the health insurance company getting robbed. But there's a, don't, the insurance companies rob everybody under the sun. Are you kidding me? With, with the way our system works. Our entire healthcare system is a scam. And they, they point out in this article, and again, credit to the New York Times for this, but they point out in the article, like, yeah, there's one reason why people are allowed to get away with this at the moment. And it's because there are no... Price regulations. There are no price regulations. Now, this is where conservatives go, oh, well, that sounds like socialism. Call it whatever the hell you want to call it. Obviously, we need it, or else you get situations like this where everybody's scamming everybody. Listen, there are certain things. I can't believe I have to explain this. It's like I'm talking to a child. There are certain situations where it makes no sense for it to be in the private marketplace. Listen, I'm not one of those people who says, there's no use ever for the private marketplace, ever. No. Of course there are. Consumer goods, it's been proven throughout history, consumer goods are so much better when they're in the private marketplace. You know, look at the cars that came out of the Soviet Union. They were ridiculous. They were a mess. There was no competition to get a better product at a lower price. In some ways, competition's good. You know, when you're talking about making couches, making video games, making shoes, making consumer goods, yes, of course, that's something that should be in the private marketplace. But some things, you don't want the fire department to be for-profit and in the, in the private marketplace. You do not want that. I guarantee you, you do not want that. What happens if your neighbor doesn't pay their freaking private fire department bill, and then their house burns down, and the, they got to sit around and say, well, he didn't pay his bill, and then their house catches your house on fire? You don't want that. When it comes to health care, you do not want health insurance, health care. None of that should be in the private for-profit marketplace. Because, listen... There is a perverse incentive structure, especially when it comes to the health insurance companies. You pay them your premium every month, and then when you need their help, what's the best thing for them to do? Well, they're going to make more money the more they deny you care. So they're going to try to find a way to deny you care and say, oh, you know, I was looking at your application, and you put your middle initial, but you needed to put your full middle name, and then therefore, as a result, we got to deny the claim because there's something wrong with the paperwork. So what am I supposed to do, man? I'm just telling you what the rules are, and you didn't follow along with it. Because they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to make as much profit as humanly possible, and the way you make profit is to deny as much care as possible. What happens if you're an insurance company, and it just so happens that in this particular month, so many people got sick, and you had to pay out on so many claims? Well, guess what? Maybe you don't make a profit that, that you know, quarter or whatever, that month. Okay. Uh, I mean, most people would say, do your damn job and give people the health care that they need. Pay for it. 
but they would try to find ways to wiggle out of paying for it. The dynamic, the incentive structure is all messed up. And I don't know how else to describe it to people, how bad the system is. When you see a system, a situation like this, where even diagnostics labs are now robbing from health insurance companies, and health insurance companies are stealing from you, and big pharma is stealing from everybody. It's, not, it's the wild, wild west. This system is as bad as it gets, okay? There's no, and again, you could look at any metric you want to look at comparing us to the rest of the developed world. It's amazing. There was a, a video that went viral about maybe like a year ago. We covered it on this show. It was telling people in the U.K. how much standard uh, American healthcare procedures cost. Like, hey, how much do you think it costs to deliver a baby? How much do you think it costs to get your appendix taken out? How much do you think? It's just random, you know, medical things. Every single time without fail, they were like, shut up. Are you serious? How much does it cost for an ambulance to show up and take you to the hospital? People are like, that's got to be free, right? They're like, <laughs> okay. Our system, our healthcare system, is a scam on top of a scam within a scam. That's how I describe it. Dr. Fauci uh, admitted something major in an interview this week, and um, I really think that this is a giant scandal, but nobody's really talking about it. It's about the U.S. government's official advice on masks early on during the pandemic. Take a look. Getting back to your first question, which was what about a month or so or two or three ago when people were saying you don't really need to wear a mask? Well, the reason for that is that we were concerned, the public health community, and including the N95 masks and the surgical masks, were in very short supply. And we wanted to make sure that the people, namely the healthcare workers, who were brave enough to put themselves in harm ways to take care of people who you know were infected with the coronavirus and the danger of them getting infected, we did not want them to be without the equipment that they needed. So there was not enthusiasm about going out and everybody buying a mask or getting a mask. We were afraid that that would deter away from the people who really needed it. Now we have masks. We know that you don't need an N95 if you're a person, ordinary person in the street. We also know that simple cloth coverings that many people have can work as well as a mask in many cases. So right now, unequivocally, the recommendation is when you're out there, particularly if you're in a situation where there's active infection, keep the distance physically and wear a mask. So although there appeared to be some contradiction of you were saying this then and why you're saying this now, actually the circumstances have changed. That's the reason why. Yeah, but if you guys had just said that from the beginning, then nobody would be mad at you. But you didn't say that. See, and I don't want to put this squarely on Fauci, but it's it's – Basically, every major national medical group, and even, I think, the World Health Organization, there was this period where everybody was like, oh, no, masks are not, don't even help curb the spread of it. What? Masks don't even help curb the spread of a pandemic? But if the main way you get it in your body is if, 
you know, you touch your mouth or touch your nose or whatever, or, you know, your eyes, well, then stands to reason if you cover your, if you don't touch your face and you cover your eyes and your nose and your mouth, that's going to, it's going to cut the spread of the virus, right? They actually were making arguments that actually, no, wearing masks doesn't do that. So I don't know how else to say this. They were lying to us. That's a lie. That's not true. It does cut the spread. But as he was saying, oh, we feared a shortage. And since we feared a shortage, like, yeah, we wanted to make sure that the frontline workers who needed it the most got it. But instead of saying, hey, we need this for the frontline workers, in which case everybody would understand, or at least some percentage of the population would understand, and there would be enough masks for the frontline workers, they, they said masks don't work. <laughs> so I don't. Guys, you got to understand something. It's stuff like this that leads to a crisis in credibility for governments, and rightfully so. If you're going to BS us that bad, that bad, that's really bad. If you're going to BS us that bad, well, then you can't be surprised when people don't, it's boy who cried wolf. You're going to say something at some point that's true, but it sounds extreme, and then people won't believe it, and then, you know, there will be dangerous and terrifying consequences. It, it, uh, listen, I hate to bring in a, a foreign policy issue, but it's true. It's like the Iraq war. They lied, they lied, they lied. We went there, and now they're surprised when, you know, they want to do more war, and we're like, no. To be fair, they're not telling the truth this time either. Usually they lie when it's Syria, when it's Iraq, all these wars they want to get us into. It's lie, 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 lie. But this is an issue where people thought there was some more trust with medical experts within the government. You know, like, okay, they're medical experts. What, what are they going to do? They're not going to tell us the truth? Why wouldn't they tell us the truth? What's their incentive to not tell us the truth? Well, apparently, in this case, they were trying to protect the frontline workers, but they didn't think it through well enough, and so they lied about masks, and now they lose all credibility. Because now, you know, what the, the next thing you tell me about the virus that seems questionable, now, you know, even me, I'm going to go, I don't know if that's true. Like, I have to take everything they say with a grain of salt now, because that was such a brazen lie that it's like, I can't accept a word you say at face value anymore. I want to be able to accept words you say from the medical community at face value, no questions asked. You're the experts. I'm an idiot. I, this is where I get my advice from. I want that to be the case. But when you lie to me about something as big as masks not working, now i got to take everything you say with a grain of salt because that's the only rational approach. So they destroyed their credibility. And that's damaging, especially because, guys, think about it. There's somebody like me who I'll hear what they say and I'll research it more and try to find out what's true. But then there are plenty of people who literally will do the, do the opposite of whatever these medical associations say now, whatever these governing medical bodies say, whether it's the World Health Organization or the CDC, whatever it might be. Like now you, you have plenty of people in this country who are just going to be like, I don't believe a damn word you say at all. And, and I do think that that helps feed into, like there are plenty of, actual COVID-19 conspiracy theories that are like, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's total BS and they're totally inflating death numbers and whatnot. There's a lot of those kind of conspiracies. And it's like, okay, they're wrong, but at the same time, I can't blame them for not believing what the government says because the government's lied a million times. So um, devastating to their credibility, really pathetic. I don't know how they thought they could get away with that, especially when, like, the countries that did social distancing and wearing masks all along had a much lower infection rate to begin with. So it's just like, what the hell, man? What the hell? 
Now they're, now they're paying the price. There are consequences to, to saying something like that, to doing such a bald-faced lie, and they're going to have to live with the results. All right, next. Corporate change is coming to America. You can see by the graphic here over my shoulder. So Aunt Jemima is having a name change and removing the image, which is based on a racial stereotype. They say the brand features a black woman named Aunt Jemima. This is like some of the backstory of where Aunt Jemima comes from that I'm going to give you now. The brand features a black woman named Aunt Jemima. I think it's from Pepsi, by the way. That's the parent company who was originally dressed as a minstrel character, the network reported. The original logo was inspired by the minstrel song Old Aunt Jemima. The company's website said the logo started in 1890 and was based on Nancy Green, a storyteller, cook, and missionary worker. However, Aunt Jemima's company does not note that Green was born into slavery in Kentucky and was hired to become the brand's first living trademark in 1890 at the age of 56. The company has faced criticism for perpetuating a racist stereotype dating back to slavery, and the logo has been changed, most recently removing the mammy uh, kerchief from the character. Um, the Aunt Jemima logo was updated in 1989 for a contemporary look, swapping her red bandana with pearl earrings and a, and a lace collar. Um, Rishi Richardson, an associate professor at Cornell University, wrote in 2015 that fa- that famous brand was very much linked to Southern racism. So you also see I have Uncle Ben over my shoulder here. What happened was, uh, again, I believe Pepsi is the parent company, and, and they said, or was it, no, I think it's Quaker Oats maybe? It might be Quaker Oats is the parent company. But whatever, do- doesn't really matter. The parent company said, okay, we're going to change the branding for Aunt Jemima because it's based on a character originally from a minstrel show, and the woman who it's after was literally born into slavery, and they feel like it, whatever, perpetuates uh, stereotypes. So they're changing Aunt Jemima. Then there were people were asking, there was like pressure on Uncle Ben's. And Uncle Ben was like, all right, all right, cool, whatever, we'll change it. Please keep buying our stuff. <laughs> so um, now they're changing both of them. And another thing that's been happening is there's been a lot of donations from like Apple and Google and these big companies, million-dollar donations to these Black Lives Matter groups. But here's the problem. There, were, there was one group, I think it was called the Black Lives Matter Foundation. And that's run by one dude in California. And he's not affiliated with the broader Black Lives Matter movement. And his idea was, I want to bring cops and black people together as one. And of course, the other Black Lives Matter movement is like, they want to defund the police, or at least that's one of the main things that they're pushing. Um, and they, at the very least, they want deep reform. It's not like they want to hold hands and sing kumbaya with officers. So these major corporations were going to donate millions of dollars to this Black Lives Matter Foundation, and they didn't even know until the last minute, bah, 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 that's not the thing, that, that's not the group that you think it is. So there's a lot of, like, scams popping up. Now, I don't know if this guy, the Black Lives Matter Foundation guy, is a scam. He seemed genuine about what he wanted to do, but it is true that he's not affiliated with the actual Black Lives Matter movement. He's his own thing. And he had already gotten, like, millions of dollars in contributions of people thinking that he, that group was the Black Lives Matter group full stop. So 
what you're seeing is, is corporations are – it's like the George Floyd killing almost led to a moment of reckoning in many ways where now you have – obviously police are under the microscope and people are like, you've got to clean up policing, bro. We're seeing so many killings of innocent black people. But then the rest of society, the corporations are like, oh, oh, oh shit, what do we do? We gotta, we gotta be down with the struggle. We gotta, we gotta align ourselves with the protesters. And so now they're doing these gestures again. Some of them donating money. They don't even know if it's the right group. They're just, like, I don't know. Here, take a couple million dollars or whatever it might be. And so there's like a rush to change stuff and and appear woke. And of course, listen, you gotta keep it real. This is all. It's all cynical. Like, it's all cynical. There's no actual moral calculation being made by Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben or the parent companies. They're just like, how can we appease everybody to try to be on the proper side of this to make sure our company isn't crushed under the weight of cultural and societal change? Like, that's what's going on. And, um, you know, it's the thing that's kind of funny to me is any like really strong reaction to what happened here. Like there were, there was somebody on Twitter who was, <laughs> who was doing the like, first we warned you about this and now they're coming for Aunt Jemima. <laughs> as if, as if it's like some devastating loss that they're changing a logo on like syrup and pancake mix. <laughs> so there were some conservatives who were going over the top, like, Oh, the destruction of culture the destruction of culture. But then also there, you know, there's some like democratic politicians think like, this is real change. It's like, no, this is, this is cynical corporations doing the bare minimum to try to appease people so that they stay relevant and keep making money. That's what it is. And again, a lot of these companies that are doing like the, like the, uh, I believe black lives matter. Jeff Bezos did this whole black lives matter thing. Meanwhile, there are two black workers that he fired or Amazon fired because they were trying to unionize and they were trying to protect workers during COVID to get them masks and to have more reasonable rules and sanitation procedures. So he says black lives matter, but then he actually materially hurts black lives by being a vicious capitalist. So forgive me if I don't think this is like, like, oh, what a turning point. How amazing this is. No, it's all cynical corporations trying to be down with the struggle so that they can keep screwing everybody economically. Hey, if we appear to be super woke, maybe people won't look under the hood and see, you know, what we're actually doing here. You know, like a lot of these companies that do the Black Lives Matter stuff, and then they have literal sweatshops overseas where, like, kids are making the clothing at indentured servant wages or whatever. Like, yeah, that's, that's the kind of... That's the kind of savage stuff I expect from corporations. Put a public smiley face out there and then behind the scenes perpetuate the status quo, make as much money as possible, and use very questionable practices in the process. So um, now overall, listen, I would actually be very interested to see like a very detailed poll or, or really in-depth interviews with the black community across the U.S., asking what they think of this and, and, you know, I'd be surprised if it was like a unanimous opinion. I think it would be, there'd be a lot of variation in opinions, but for me, I look at this and I say, okay, fine, cool. Like, yeah, get rid of these goofy logos, which are like 
a leftover from previous generations, which do kind of have some disturbing undertones, either a minstrel show or just like almost like glorifying a previous era where black people had to just like wait on white people. And, and that was the, the whole point of their existence was like, serve me food and stuff. So like, I get it and, and I'm, makes sense to me to change it. The only thing I'm cautioning is let's not pretend like this is some real societal change because as I always tell you guys, the first thing everybody caves on is the symbolism because nothing hinges on the symbolism. So believe me, if a vicious billionaire capitalist thinks, oh, if I just take a knee, then I can keep ripping everybody off and being a billionaire and paying no taxes and hiding it in a tax haven. If, if all I have to do is take a knee, shit, I'll take a knee. Why not? So don't, don't get it twisted because they'll always cave on the symbolism first. They'll always cave on something like a logo first because that's easy. That's easy, and it's a way to appease. Okay, if I do this, we... And it's like if all of these companies that are pretending to be down with the struggle, um, if they really wanted to make a difference, Let's see the corporations lobby the government to demilitarize the police. Let's see the corporations lobby the government to end the drug war. What about that? Let's see the corporations lobby the government for a living wage. (laughs) See, they're against the living wage. Hey, we'll get rid of the really questionable symbolism here, but don't look at how we treat our workers at all, please. So this is this. The kind of culture war stuff that we're looking at here, um, I do always feel to some extent that it's, it's a bare minimum thing. It's like, okay, we'll do the bare minimum. We'll totally cave on the symbolism, like all these racist statues that are coming down all over the place now. Again, I'm totally fine with the statues coming down, but let's not pretend like that is, like this is change that is going to materially improve lives. Like, no, you want to materially improve lives? demilitarize the police, end the drug war, and let's get, get, have, give everybody a living wage. Like, there are actual material ways to do that, and instead of doing that, they'll substitute it with the symbolism, and they'll substitute it with, see what we did? We changed the logo, heroes. That's what we are. We're heroes. Congrats. <laughs> Congrats on, the, you know, changing the logo and then wanting everybody to give you a, a pat on the back as if this is somehow going above and beyond in service of justice. And I think that's the other thing I can't stand about is the, the self-aggrandizing, the moral grandstanding and pats on the back. I mean, this is like literally, this is virtue signaling. That's what it is. This is like the definition of virtue signaling. We changed the logo. Tell us we're heroes. <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell you you're heroes. You're doing the bare minimum, and you're doing the bare minimum to deflect and divert from the fact that in other ways, mostly economically, you're screwing everybody in sight. So... There you have it. Aunt Jemima uh, is gone. Uncle Ben is gone. I'm curious what they'll... We don't know what they're going to change the name to. We don't know what they're going to change the logo to. What I'm interested in is what if they change it and there's no... There, it, it's no longer a black person involved. Like, Because then isn't there an argument of like, oh, it's racist in the other direction? Like, you see what I'm saying? You could say it's racist to have, you know, these characters there because it does harken back to a time of, like, slavery and, and 
a time when black people were second-class citizens. But then at the same time, if you remove the black characters completely and just change it and there's no black person involved, then can't people also flip that and say, well, this isn't a step forward, it's a step backward, because now you're not glorifying anything about black society or black culture. You just change the logo to whatever. Um, you fill in the blank. An animal or something. I don't know. Because um, I could see that happening too. In other words, I think that it's also not really possible to appease everybody on this because no matter what you do, it can be spun as insensitive and offensive. You see what I'm saying? Again, I'm not saying I disagree with the move. I'm just saying that if they go in a direction of totally getting rid of black characters completely, then it's like, okay, well, isn't that a step backward? Because now there's no black people involved. Don't we want black people involved? So, again, it's, I don't know. Are they going to get rid of Aunt Jemima and replace Aunt Jemima with, like, a, a strong, independent black woman who's a CEO on the box? In which case, it's like, okay, now this is neoliberal identity pandering to the max. So I just, I don't think there's any winning. There's no winning. And, but you will continue to see corporations attempt to appear to be really woke in order to try to, deflect from the fact that their practices are usually behind the scenes very questionable. All right, next. So let me show you the new sleazy trick that has been fine-tuned over the past couple of years or maybe a couple of decades by corrupt corporate judges and politicians and lawyers. This is a really fascinating trick. So Lee Fong uh, tweeted about this. A D.C. Circuit Court upholds federal court decision blocking rule to require drug companies to disclose prices in direct-to-consumer ads. The court says the rules... The court says the rule violates the pharmaceutical industry's First Amendment rights by compelling speech. And then he also says, last month, a different federal judge blocked a rule prohibiting certain forms of debt collection during the COVID-19 emergency. The decision similarly argued that the rule blocked the debt collection industry's First Amendment commercial speech rights. Okay, so listen, everybody knows this about me. In fact, this is one of the criticisms I get from a lot of my fellow lefties who agree with me on other things, but not necessarily this issue. Um, I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm a free speech bro. You could call me that, and I'm perfectly comfortable with it. Um, but I believe in free speech for human beings, for individuals. I believe in the right to freedom of speech. There is certainly no right of corporations to free speech because they're not people. In order to say corporations have free speech rights, the implication of that, the underlying assumption, the premise is, they have the same rights as human beings, but they don't. They're not human beings. So now you're having what I think is a genuine bastardization of the First Amendment and free speech issues. It's leaking into a corporate cover story. Like this is a thin, pathetic rationale that corporations are using to be corrupt and to commit crimes. That's what this is. 
So let's, let's go through it again here. Um, a court basically decided that a rule, and I believe it's a Trump administration rule, it's one of the few good things he did, it's a rule that requires drug companies to disclose their prices in the ads. And this way, like the idea behind it is everybody knows what you're charging. You can't rip, rip off as much as you would if you kind of hit it and only the people who get the drug know. So you've got to tell the world how much this costs. And, you know, it's a way to try to force them to, in a roundabout way, be a little more fair. Now, will that work? I don't know. Maybe a little bit it would work, but it's certainly better than not having that rule. Really, in other developed countries, they don't have pharmaceutical ads, period. Because the idea is, why would you advertise for a medicine that somebody needs when they're sick? Like, no, the person would go to the doctor, the doctor would say, here's the medicine for you, and that's it. To advertise for it is very weird. To make it like a consumer good when it's just, it's more of like a matter of necessity. So other countries don't even have pharmaceutical ads. We have them here, because we're crazy. And then, so the rule was, all right, well, you have to say how much it costs in the ad, and then the judge says, no, that's compelling speech, and that violates their First Amendment rights. But by that logic, any kind of basic bare minimum consumer protections violates the First Amendment rights of corporations. So you can never have, you know, the um, – it's like when you watch the pharmaceutical ads and they have to say, here are the side effects, here are the potential side effects. Under this logic – they would say that's unconstitutional, too, because you're forcing them to say something, but they have the free speech rights to say whatever they want, so you can't force them to say something that they don't want to say. So in other words, consumer protection is out the window, not a concept that exists, not a concept that should exist, because these corporations have free speech rights, and you're violating that. I think this is absolute insanity. It's insanity. And then the second one he said here, a different federal judge blocked a rule prohibiting certain forms of debt collection during COVID-19 emergency. So um, the government said, listen, it's, it's an emergency. People have no money. They're losing their jobs. We need to put a temporary pause on debt collection. And a court said, you cannot do that. You're not allowed to do that because that violates the collection industry's First Amendment commercial speech rights. So in other words, they have the right to harass you for their money. They have the right to pester you, even if you lost your job, even if you have no money in the bank. They have the right to pester you. So you see what they're doing? They're taking the issue of free speech, and now they're expanding it to corporations. And now corporations will do all sorts of unscrupulous, evil, greedy actions, and then they'll be able to hide behind the fact, hey, man, I have free speech rights. But you don't. Like, again, the whole point of the First Amendment is individuals have freedom of speech. Corporations most certainly do not, which is why it should be the case that you have to, there have to be warnings with the sales of certain products. You see what I'm saying? There have to be warnings. By, again, by this logic, why can't they eliminate all, like, you know, the age requirement to buy alcohol, 21 years old? If a company says, I want to advertise to 14-year-olds, under this logic, you couldn't block the alcohol company from trying to, to advertise to 14-year-olds because they say, this is my free speech rights. I have the ability to advertise to whoever I want. You can't tell me not to say that because this is my free speech rights. Like, again, if you stretch this argument to its logical conclusion, it's ridiculous. You should, again, another example, murder for hire. 
should be legal under this ruling. Why? If somebody is talking to a hitman, and the hitman is saying, yeah, okay, so who do you want me to kill? What's his name? All right, I'll look into it, taking down notes and everything. It would be the right of them to have that conversation because the hitman says, I'm, I'm part of a company, so it's my commercial speech rights to have this conversation. Now, now, you could say, Kyle, they're breaking other laws like the law against murder. Right, that's the point. The point is that it was a violation to not put what the side effects are of the drugs and how much it costs. It's a violation to do that. You can't say they have a right to say whatever they want, because then again, fraud would be legal. They could lie to you about the product. They could lie to you about the product, and then you say, hey, man, that's not right. You're committing fraud. And the response from the court could be they have a First Amendment right, you can't compel speech, and they have commercial speech rights. So if they want to tell you that this magic pill will save your life, even though there's no evidence of it, who are we to say no? They have every right under the First Amendment to say whatever the hell they want to say. See, you see how this is just absolute insanity, and this is untenable? You cannot have a situation where human beings, yes, should have free speech rights. You're individuals, yes. But there is no corporate speech rights. You can't set up a business, do anything, and then when people say, hey, that's illegal or that's not right or that's unconstitutional, you respond, oh, you're restricting my free speech rights. You can't set up a murder-for-hire business. You can't set up a prostitution ring. You know, you can't commit brazen fraud and get away with it. The argument that they're using could easily be stretched to, no, this is, I have the right to say these things, and you can't stop me from saying them, so it's not illegal. It's basically carving out an exception when it comes to crime for companies. Corporations can do whatever they want. Because now you're saying they have, you can't compel speech from them, so you can't do basic consumer protection policies, and they could say whatever they want because they have commercial speech rights, so you can't stop them, prevent them from lying about something or trying to hide information that's, nece- that's pertinent. This is madness. And people really don't realize, man, society is so fragile because there was an era in U.S. Supreme Court history. It's called the Lochner era. And in that era, the Supreme Court ruled that people have what's called a right to contract. And what that means is if you as an individual get into some sort of business agreement with, with somebody and they're your boss, the government has no standing to interfere and say, hey, man, you have to meet these bare minimum standards. So in other words, there can't be any child labor. You know, you're, we're, we're not allowing child labor. There's minimum wage protections. There's safety protections that, you know, you have to be provided with certain things in certain fields that are dangerous. During this era, the Supreme Court said, no, the government can't say or do anything. So if an employer and employee come to an agreement, that's it. The government needs to butt out. So there was no economic regulation at all. And naturally, as I'm sure you would imagine, because you're all very bright people, what would happen is the bosses, the employers, would viciously and ruthlessly take advantage of the fact that there are no rules. And they would enter, these poor employees would get horrendous contracts. They have to work six or seven days a week no safety uh, protections, no minimum wage protections, no overtime, no nothing. And the Supreme Court said, hey, there's a right to contract. So the government cannot get involved, cannot do regulations, cannot do protections, cannot have minimum wage laws or anything. 
So there was an era where we had like constitutionally enforced extreme laissez-faire unfettered capitalism. And that wasn't even that long ago. That era ended in like the 1930s when FDR came in. So there was a, like people don't understand that all these gains were hard fought and they can go away like that. And with decisions like this coming out of the D.C. Circuit Courts, it, it's easy to imagine a situation where we go right back to a Lochner era. And, and we have, like, insane, unfettered capitalism with no protections. And we're already seeing it now when it comes to speech. You can't make pharma companies or, or other companies tell the truth about their product because you're compelling speech. And they have a right to say what they want. And you can't stop them because they have commercial free speech rights. That's insane. That's insane. You're legalizing fraud under that framework. And it's crazy to me that this isn't a bigger story. Here we go. We got a Trump story about the cops. President Trump signed an executive order on police reform. That's interesting. A little surprised that he did that. Let's hear what he says is in it. What's needed now is not more stoking of fear and division. We need to bring law enforcement and communities closer together, not to drive them apart. Under the executive order I'm signing today, we will prioritize federal grants from the Department of Justice to police departments that seek independent credentialing, certifying that they meet high standards, and in fact, in certain cases, the highest standard, that's where they do the best, on the use of force and de-escalation training. For example, many believe that proper training might have prevented the tragic deaths of Antoine Rose and Botham Jean. As part of this new credentialing process, chokeholds will be banned, except if an officer's life is at risk. And I will say we've dealt with all of the various departments, and everybody said it's time. We have to do it. Additionally, we're looking at new advanced and powerful, less lethal weapons to help prevent deadly interactions. New devices are being developed all the time, and we're looking at the best of them. And cost is no object, no object. Under this executive order, departments will also need a share of information about credible abuses so that officers with significant issues do not simply move from one police department to the next. That's a problem. And the heads of our police department said, whatever you can do about that, please let us know. We're letting you know. We're doing a lot about it. In addition, my order will direct federal funding to support officers in dealing with homeless individuals and those who have mental illness and substance abuse problems. We will provide more resources for co-responders, such as social workers who can help officers manage these complex encounters. And this is what they've studied and worked on all their lives. They understand how to do it. We're going to get the best of them put in our police departments and working with our police. We will have reform 
without undermining our many great and extremely talented law enforcement officers. President Obama and Vice President Biden never even tried to fix this during their eight-year period. The reason they didn't try is because they had no idea how to do it, and it is a complex situation. Beyond the steps we are taking today, I am committed to working with Congress on additional measures. Congress has started already, and they'll be having bills coming out of the Senate and possibly out of the House, and hopefully they'll all get together and they'll come up with a solution that goes even beyond what we're signing today, but this is a big, big step, a step that hasn't been taken before. All right, so just to outline it for everybody, he wants federal grants to departments who uh, prioritize credentialing. I mean, that's like more funding for the police, it seems to me, so kind of the exact opposite of what protesters are calling for. Uh, he wants to ban chokeholds, but he says except if the officer's life is at risk. Um, less, less lethal weapons which is, again, just more of a giveaway to police officers, the less, less lethal weapons. It's hard to say that. Um, they've been doing a lot of damage recently. Somebody lost an eye in one of these protests because they shot it at their eye. Um, so I don't know how good of an idea that is. Uh, he says he wants to basically stop bad cops from being shuffled around from one department to another after uh, they lose their job. That idea is good in theory. I don't know if in practice his executive order will actually do anything about that. Um, and then he says he wants more resources for social workers and social workers to work with cops and you know them to be more involved in responding to like the homelessness crisis, for example, and kind of take that out of the hands of the police. Again, I, in theory, that's a good idea. I just don't know if in practice what he's doing is actually going to make that come to fruition. Um, I guess we'll have to see, but I really don't know. I don't know... If this has teeth, it, it seems like it's almost like a branding exercise to be like, see, we're doing something. Um, and listen, you do have to say, you do have to say, the whole defund the police movement, it is working. It is working. You have a lot of police departments around the country and a lot of mayors who are taking direct action. They're cutting police budgets. They, you know, they are disbanding the police department in, uh, in Minneapolis, which is, of course, where the George Floyd killing happened, and they're going to replace them with, like, a community first responder type thing, which effectively will do policing, but it's not the exact same police department. Um, and there are all these reforms that I do think a lot of them are substantive, and they're popping up in a lot of places. So, in other words... When you go out there and make a demand that sounds as extreme as defund the police, which sounds like abolish the police, um, it's worked in the sense that it's a position that's been staked out by activists that sounds extreme, and then all the politicians are rushing to split the difference between defund the police and do nothing. And when you actually split the difference, you get a lot of, I think, relatively substantive reforms. Now, again, in the case of Trump, I don't know how much teeth this has so it could just be grandstanding to try to make it look like he's doing something when he's really doing nothing. But some of the ideas are silly because they're just giving more resources to the police when that's exactly the opposite of what, what people are calling for. And some of them might not, in practice, measure up to do anything. But the activists are forcing real change. So don't let anybody tell you that this isn't having an impact. It's absolutely having an impact. Um, 
Now, I will say, the bottom line to me is this. If you're not ending the war on drugs and demilitarizing the police, then ultimately it's, this is all going to come to naught. Like, there, w- there are some changes, like cuts to departments, which I think are real, um, which will have an impact. But outside of that, all the other things are, um, to steal a phrase, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the, on the deck of the Titanic. I said deck twice. Rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Um, really, you have to end the drug war and you have to demilitarize. I get it. We're, we're a nation that's armed to the teeth, so the cops can keep a gun in their car, but they should not have guns on them when they show when there's like a, you know, they show up to an incident where there's no reason to have fear. Um, other developed countries, they're not armed at all. Now I get it. They also don't have as many guns, so that's why I said there's you know little asterisks if you could keep it in the car, um, but you got to demilitarize and you got to end the drug war, because. The drug war is the fuel that allows the over-policing and the oppression of poor communities and communities of color. Um, so you're really not changing enough unless and until you do that. And that's, to me, the bare minimum of, of what needs to happen. Obviously, there are other things like independent prosecutors across the board, and there's a bunch of stuff. Bernie actually has a bill that has a lot of very smart ideas on this. But Trump is at least moving when it comes to the messaging of it. So he's at least, he at least feels the need to grandstand on doing something, which is good. I don't know how substantive it is from him, but the defund the police movement has started to get real concessions around the country. Um, so at least in terms of being a strategy to get reforms, I think it's working. I think if you talk to people who really are hardcore believers in defund the police, they'll say we're not winning because we want to actually defund the police. But... I think the fact that they're calling for that is dragging the Overton window to the left and ultimately will have some positive effects. But, again, I think we need to bare minimum end the drug war and demilitarize the cops. And until we do that, there's not going to be enough change, and you're not going to really put a significant dent in the thousand deaths we have every year because of police violence. Okay. Two more, and then we will call it a day. Laura Ingram and her guest had a discussion about statues coming down all over the South. Um, It has gone beyond that in some instances, but most of the statues that are coming down are of, like, you know, prominent Confederates in the South. There was one that came down in the U.K. of a prominent slave runner, um, some colonialist statues of kings came down and elsewhere. I think one was in like Belgium or something. But anyway, so a lot of statues are coming down. They're going to discuss that. Of course, they're you know, largely against it. And, but there was also a reference to the Trail of Tears here at the end from Ingram's guest. Pay close attention to that part. statue becomes a point of contention. That's just the way things work. All right, Lincoln is not, though, the only presidential statue being targeted now, is he? 
Whoa, in Portland, a statue of Thomas Jefferson Lower was ripped from its base in front of Jefferson High School. The words slave owner and George Floyd were spray painted on the base. And there's a group here in New Orleans, led by a guy from New York, that's demanding that the city council tear down the iconic Andrew Jackson statue in the French what? Quarter by the end of the month. Yes. In the meantime, the city council here in New Orleans is entertaining proposals to rename streets honoring Confederates. Now, one of those streets was Beauregard. We mentioned PGT Beauregard last week. He came back from the Civil War and led efforts to secure the black vote and open the first public schools for black children. Laura, history's complex. Our children deserve the full story, sins and all. Now, all but two of the first dozen U.S. presidents were slave owners. Are we to flatten all public memory of them, or rather should we not confront that history honestly as a united people, call out the sins, and also mention the glories of these guys? Well, also, it's hard to judge people on our standards more enlightened today and then say, well, 200 years ago you did it. Yeah, we did a lot of really bad things, <laughs> including right. uh, owning slaves. I mean, I, guess, I say this as a Connecticut Yankee, okay? I don't really have yeah. any great affinity well, for, you know, a lot of this. But, I mean, uh, the other way, they're going to take the rotunda down at the University of Virginia, where I went to law school. Mm -hmm. They will take right. the Thomas Jefferson. They will, because it's all created as part of the, you know, the ode to Jefferson. Western civilization. Yeah, he designed it. So yeah. all of it has to go. Every last bit of it has to. Actually, the whole University of Virginia then should just go because he designed the whole thing. So and well, we got to keep going. Of Andy, in the case of Andy Jackson, really quickly, they they say, look, he created the Trail of Tears. He attacked the Indians. Yeah. Here's the reality: he went to war with the Creeks in 1813 because they massacred 250 Americans. Yeah. Black women opened, left their embryos out. He he saw a lot of bitter battle. This is how he he, he held the country together. It was ugly, but those were the times. Take it all as it is, as it happens. Yeah, so that last point is, come on, man. It was ugly, but those were the times, so just take it as is. Take it all. Yeah, but what Andrew Jackson did, it wasn't like, he's trying to make it sound like, oh, the Trail of Tears was purely defensive to keep the nation together. The Trail of Tears is totally indefensible. There's no way that that was defensive in nature, full stop. Of course not. Of course not. See, this is like, this is my contention with a lot of people who are on the far right. They, they always try to believe, like, the most naive and charitable interpretation of U.S. history. Like, the argument he's making is fundamentally that, well, Andrew Jackson kind of had to do the Trail of Tears and the Native American genocide. And it's like, no, of course he didn't. Of course he had a choice to not do that, and he decided to do that. He has agency. So now we should probably own the fact that that's what he did. And like, yeah, I get it, man. I get it that people are like, why a statue of that guy? Forget that guy. Like, I get it. I get it that he was a president, too. And that's the other side of it is that people say he is a president. It's part of our history. So what are you going to do? You're going to try to whitewash all of history? Like, this is a conservative argument against the left. And so I have I have a lot to say about this. On the Trail of Tears point, I think that's, I think he's totally wrong, and I think it's comical that he's willing to do the whole, like, apologetics for the Trail of Tears and the Native American genocide and try to frame it as if it was all like, oh, poor Andrew Jackson, he had no choice. He had to do what he had to do. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But apart from that, I actually do think that the conversation about statues overall is interesting because when you talk about the Confederate statues, 
I was going to say most people get it about that, but actually that's not true. I just saw a poll that it, most people, I think it was 58% of people, said, no, don't pull them down. That actually did surprise me a little bit. I thought it would be, I thought it'd be maybe a 60-40 issue in the other direction, that 60% of people were like, yeah, pull it down. They're Confederate statues. They seceded from the U.S., and they were defending slavery. So, yeah, take those statues down. I was wrong. It's like 58% of people who say leave them up. So, I mean, that's, I think that's an interesting point. But when it comes to the Confederate statues, I think that there's a pretty compelling argument, I'll say, to, to taking it down, specifically because of what I just alluded to, which is they could try to dress it up now after the fact, like, oh, no, it wasn't about slavery, it was about stage rights, and, okay, yeah, some of these guys were bad, but they also did good things too, so you could say that the statue represents more of the good stuff, and... Like, there are all these rationalizations, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I do think they're rationalizations where it's not, there is nuance there, but it's not that nuance. It's like, yeah, this, these are Confederate statues, and the idea is to, like, you know, glamorize the previous era and what the Confederacy stood for, and especially when you have tax-paying American citizens in the South who are black, and you're effectively asking them their tax money, their government that's supposed to represent them to allow this monument to their oppression and enslavement. And so I get, when I look at that, I go, yeah, I think it's reasonable that people want to take it down. And honestly, my, my instinct is, like, keep the statues intact, put them in a museum. That's what I think. Now, you'd find people on the left who disagree with me on that, too. You know, they'd say, hey, man, in, in Nazi Germany... I don't know, is there a Nazi museum? I don't think so. I think they destroyed a lot of the relics from that era. I mean, maybe there is a Nazi museum, and I don't know about it, but I think the argument would be you shouldn't have even a museum to go to see, you know, where Goebbels and Himmler and, and, and Hitler, it's just, they're just bad, so just take them down. I don't agree with that because I do think there's value in education and knowledge, and that is educational, and that happened. So, like, yeah, we got to acknowledge it. So... I would have it in a museum. Do I fear a little bit that it would become almost like a shrine for far-right movements to go visit? I do fear that a little bit, but I do think that ultimately knowledge winning out is more important than maybe having a place where a bunch of bad people get together to discuss bad things. So, and again, I know people disagree. some people disagree with me on that. People disagree with me in both directions. Some people will say, leave the statues up. In fact, most people in the country say that. But then other people will say, not only take them down, don't even put them in a museum. I say, take them, uh, I say take them down, but keep them intact and put them in a museum. Okay? But see, this is where the conversation gets interesting. And I touched on this on Kyle and Corin um, on the last show. Then it does open up Pandora's box a little bit. And there is a slippery slope. Because then the question becomes, well, what about our founding fathers? A lot of them were slave owners. So what about them? When you talk about the Confederacy, it is a little different because they literally seceded from the United States. They were un-American, and their whole point was to try to protect slavery. The Founding Fathers, you know, some of them directly involved in, in writing the Constitution and coming up with a lot of the good ideas that were in there. Of course, there were bad things, the Three-Fifths Compromise, for example, and slavery is bad and indefensible. Um, but what, I think, what do you do in that situation? Well, then it becomes a, a more difficult case. Because, yeah, you do have people who in some ways were brilliant, but in other ways were genuinely evil. So I think there is more nuance there. Um, and see, that's, when you discuss that issue, 
then I think you get a huge break between what the left wants and what academics want versus what the public wants. I think the public would overwhelmingly say, don't you dare pull down a statue of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln. Now, Lincoln freed the slaves, of course, but the statue that they were talking about that was questionable for Lincoln is that there was like a slave who um, like, is almost like crawling at his feet, looking super desperate. It's like a, it's a very like, harsh caricature of the situation. I think some people were like, you could put up the Abraham Lincoln statue, but the slave part is sort of weird. But anyway, I digress from that. I do think there's an interesting conversation to be had. Where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line on just get rid of the Confederate statues, or do you say get rid of the Confederate statues, leave the Founding Fathers statues, or get rid of the Confederate statues, get rid of the Founding Fathers statues who owned slaves but not the ones who didn't or not the ones who objected to slavery? I don't know. And then, you know, the, the, I think the real, like, lefty position is, like, get rid of all the statues and get rid of all of the, you know, symbols of the nation, period, whether it's the bald eagle or the American flag. For me, listen, I'm a guy, and I know this is just me. I'm not, I'm, most of you will probably disagree with me on this, but for me, I don't care about symbolism that much. Like, I think it's, I really think it's largely unimportant, but people assign importance to it. Um, so I, I would be comfortable getting rid of all the statues and just having the national symbols of, like, the flag and the bald eagle. Like, I think nation states exist, and I, there's a reason for them existing. And I, I think the nation state makes sense just from an organizational perspective. Like, we have to have a way to administer goods and services and have security and order for everybody. So, so borders exist for that reason, and nation states exist for that reason, in my mind. I don't think that they're inherently wrong or evil or bad. So I'm cool with having a nation state. Some lefties and anarchists and hardcore libertarians say, no, I don't even believe in the nation state. Abolish all borders. I don't agree with that. I'm fine with having borders. Um, but I get having some sort of national unity and some, some sort of national fabric that brings us together. But to me, I don't need to deify men who are imperfect for that. I'm fine with having a national symbol like a flag or like a bald eagle to represent that. Um, so I guess that, for me, I don't care. If you pull down the Confederate statues, I'm fine with it. If you pull down the fence, and I know this is controversial, but to me, I don't care if you pull down the statues of the Founding Fathers. I just don't care about statues that much. I really don't. Um, but if you, and I think here's the smart left-wing argument. Like, yeah, pull it all down, but you can replace the statues that we have now with statues of the real, genuine heroes. The Eugene Debs, the Martin Luther King Jr. Like, oh, you want to deify people? You want to put statues up to people? Okay, put statues up to the people who really deserve the statues. But then you get into the, the disagreements over who deserves it and why. Because some people will say Martin Luther King cheated on his wife. Sure, he was good for bringing about societal change, but personally, he wasn't. So why would you put up a statue of him? You know, you talk about FDR. We talk about FDR a lot on the show. I agree with the New Deal completely. He helped defeat the Nazis. These were all super important things. But he did put Japanese people in internment camps. Does he get a statue? Well, probably not under our criteria. So it is true that you open up Pandora's box when you go down this road of like, hey, what symbolism is acceptable, what's not acceptable, what statues are okay, what's not okay. My general position, as unpopular as it sounds right now, is 
I really don't care too much about what ends up happening with the statues because I view the symbolism debate and discussion as the culture war that's kind of a distraction from the substantive stuff about fixing people's lives involving foreign policy and economic policy and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, I don't really care about symbolism. So if the statues come down, I'm fine with it. If the statues stay up, I'm fine with it. But I do find it interesting when people have very hardcore opinions on this, like the conservatives who say, leave the statues alone. It doesn't mean what they obviously mean and shut up and... Like, I find it very funny that you have people, even the people on the left who are so convinced that this is the moral issue of our time. It's like, I don't agree with that either. Even, even though I, my instinct is, yeah, pull down the Confederate statues. Is it the end of the world if they don't? No. But then again, I'm a white dude, comfortable in the North, so it's, you know, maybe my perspective isn't as relevant in this conversation. But I think this is one of those issues where there's a lot of issues where I think the left is totally in agreement, like with Medicare for all, for example. Then there's other issues like this where not the left, but the entire country is totally split as to what exactly the right path is, why it's the right path, what the rationale is. But let's not kid ourselves about the pulling down of statues in this sense. It is true. Once you pull it down, you're opening Pandora's box. And then, yes, eventually you do have to have the conversation about the founding fathers and the ones who owned slaves. Um, and you do have to have a conversation about, are any symbols acceptable? Are any, is any sort of national pride acceptable? And I think that overall, even though the Confederate statues is an issue that seems a lot less nuanced to me, I think the overall conversation is very nuanced. And I'm interested in hearing out everybody's perspective on this. But I will say, in the case of like Laura Ingram and the hardcore conservatives, it, I just find it funny that they find a reason to think it's absurd to want to pull down statues. And it's like, no, you get it. Like, you get it. Why are you pretending like you don't get it? Of course you get it, why it's, a, why it's an issue and why people are talking about it. I agree that it's not the biggest issue, but, yeah, don't pretend like having a hardcore opinion on this without seeing the nuance I think is just a fool's errand. And, you know, she's a good example of that, as well as her annoying guest who kind of defended the Trail of Tears. All right, final story, y'all. India and China are on the brink of war, and this is not a story that's getting enough coverage. Um, but listen, it's so in line with how terrible 2020 has been, so of course this was going to happen. Um, so there's a border incident involving deaths a few days ago. It's in a region of the Himalayas. Uh, let's take a look at what went down. In the remote western Himalayas, there is little evidence of what led to Indian and Chinese soldiers engaging in a deadly brawl at their border on Monday. India's army said there were casualties on both sides, but not a shot was fired. These are Indian military reinforcements destined for the border shortly after. India and China share the world's longest unmarked border. In recent months, both sides have upped their military presence, tensions increasing over who owns what land. The border has been disputed since India and China went to war in 1962. The line in yellow is the so-called line of actual control, but there are several disputed areas on either side. One of the main ones is Aksai Chin, which is claimed by India 
but administered by China. India has appeared confident in a diplomatic resolution just on Saturday. India's army chief said this. The entire situation along our borders with China is under control. We are having a series of talks. The Chinese also thought dialogue was working, but blame India for the deadly breakdown. On June 6, border forces of the two countries had commander-level talks and reached a consensus on easing the situation in the border area. However, it was shocking that the Indian forces violated the consensus, crossing the border twice to carry out illegal activities and provoking attacks on Chinese soldiers. Indian officials have refuted that they caused the escalation. This time, what I see is a more aggressive posture by the Chinese which looks like a deliberate policy to create confusion between India, or rather deteriorate the relationship between India and China at the highest level. Leh is a quiet town on the Indian side of the border. Outside of military helicopters, residents have few clues behind the tension on their doorstep. Officials aren't releasing any statement regarding the standoff that is going on at the border, so rumors spread which has created fear among the people. People living near the border are more scared. The cellular network in the area has also been cut off and no information is coming through. The deadly skirmishes raising the stakes for Beijing and New Delhi over where their vast frontiers begin and end. Charlotte Dallas, Al Jazeera. So just so everybody understands, people died and they were killed with, not with guns, it was like old school bats with spikes on it, knives, like it was a brawl. I And we don't have very many details, but we know not a shot was fired and a bunch of people died anyway. Like, what is going on here? So, listen, this is one of those instances where all you can say is that I, I really hope that diplomacy and cooler heads prevail, because they have to prevail for continued peace. And if they don't prevail, then we're in trouble because these are two giant countries and pretty powerful countries at that. Um, So this is why, you know, like right-wing nationalism is so dangerous. Some people would take issue with calling China right-wing, but I would say that they're, at the very least, they're authoritarian nationalists. I think it's fair to call it that. The Chinese Communist Party is authoritarian and nationalist. Um, so you have India and, and Modi. You know, Modi is a right-wing nationalist. And as a general rule, right-wing nationalists are expansionist. Now, that's not, that's not all of them. You know, there are instances of right-wing nationalists who are more um, isolationist and protectionist. But there are many right-wing nationalists who are expansionist. And they have goals of like, expanding their sphere of influence. So take Erdogan, for example, in Turkey, same thing. He's a right-wing nationalist and he's expansionist. Um, I'm sure he, in his heart of hearts, he would love to bring back the Ottoman Empire. Um, You have Modi, who's a right-wing nationalist, and, you know, he doesn't want any threat to his dominance of the region, his power and his authority. And he's, you know, a Hindu nationalist as well, like a Hindu extremist. And then you have uh, Xi Jinping, and listen, they're doing the Belt and Road Initiative right now. And that's like, that's an empire through debt kind of scheme. So 
what they're doing is they want to build up infrastructure in all these surrounding areas. And then you build up infrastructure and you enter into business agreements with all these countries. And, you know, the long-term goal is to have China become the world's sole superpower. And um, they're going about it in an intelligent way. You know, the United States, what we're doing now is we start wars with everybody and we overthrow, violently overthrow governments. What they're doing is much more intelligent in the sense that they're like, they're offering people material well-being in exchange for business relationships and in exchange for, you know, some degree of subservience and understanding where they are in the pecking order. So you have this infrastructure being built in a bunch of places from China, and China's expanding as a result of that. Their sphere of influence is expanding. And, of course, Donald Trump is too stupid to know how to handle all this stuff or deal with all this stuff or take a position on it or what have you. But, I mean, listen, when you have Modi, a right-wing nationalist in India, and you have Xi Jinping, who's an authoritarian nationalist, uh, and he's expansionist as well in China, and they're butting heads, I hope there is the ability to de-escalate, but who knows? Who knows? It's possible that they have their minds made up, that, you know, Modi says, no, this is my, I govern this area, your border is there. And China goes, no, we disagree. In fact, we're building infrastructure in this area, and uh, our border ends there, and you ain't going to do Dickie McGee's act about it because my military is more powerful than yours. So I hope that they can de-escalate, um, but honestly, my guess is they're both going to be hardliners about where they want that, where they want the border to be, and they're not going to agree on it. And um, you know, we just just saw what uh, Modi was doing in Kashmir, and like, and we also see what China's doing in Hong Kong, right? So you have those are perfect examples and very comparable, where you know. Right-wing strongmen are like, yeah, we're going to change some stuff, and we're going to have more power and influence. And then they act on it. And so can you get two strongmen to, like, sit down, negotiate something out, have a clear border, and then that's that, and it's settled? I don't know. But I hope they can, because if we can't get that done, I shudder to think of the consequences. All right, guys, that's the show. I love you, baby. Everybody stay healthy, enjoy the rest of your day, and enjoy your weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.